The views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect on anyone other than the host or his respective guest. Some know him as the defender of common sense. Others simply know him as that South African asshole on YouTube. For the purpose of this podcast, we simply refer to him as Ronaldo. Regardless of what you might call him, get ready to be slapped in the face with a little known thing called common sense. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the RG Show. Hi, what's up guys? It's Ronaldo here and welcome to a really special edition of uh, not really the Sunday debate because uh, we aren't actually live on a Sunday. Um, I have the privilege of being the last person to interview Helen Ziller as the Premier of the Western Cape. Helen, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, Ronaldo. This is my last night as Premier of the Western Cape. I'm all alone in a lodge and haunted house, but I'm enjoying every minute of it. Fantastic. So, well, that's actually maybe an interesting thing that we can start off with is firstly, how are you feeling? Um, you know, this has been something you've served full two full terms as the Premier of the Western Cape. Um, and I believe that you you live in Leuvenhof, which is arguably uh, the best spot to live in in Cape Town. So are they evicting you? Uh, are you going? And, uh, you know, well, are, why are you staying on? As I said, tonight is my last night as Premier. I've got to know the ghosts very well. And I have to say this in Afrikaans, but my husband said, So we've already chosen our own place to come and be ghosts in. I just want to warn all the future premiers that they're not going to have an easy time with us. Um, you know, I have loved living here, and we have officially, till the end of June, to live here, to pack up and do all the things we have to do. But I'm not going anywhere, because you do know that there's this Prevention of Illegal Eviction Act which I've had to deal with the whole of my time as Premier. And I haven't got anywhere else to go, so I'll just simply say to the Western Cape government, until you provided me a comparable alternative, I'm going nowhere. And then I also know how to drag out a court case for another 10 years, so I can do as, as Jacob Zuma, I can do a Stalingrad here. So we're in here for the long haul. Oh, wow. Well, <laughs> you've heard it your first, people. So Helen Ziller will remain in Leuvenor for at least the next 10 years. Um, all right. So, Helen, look, there's been a couple of things that, that's obviously happened over the last, I would say, four or five days, uh, where I'm not sure if you watch Game of Thrones, but pretty much uh, you've been the dragon in Game of Thrones, uh, where you just completely owned everybody and destroyed everybody that came uh, in your way. So with that being said, I don't want this live stream to focus on that because the legacy of Helen Zilla is so much more than that. What I would like to speak on, though, is identity politics and also the way that things are going um, in South Africa with regards to race relations and various other things. But I'm sure that you're going to write a, a big opinion piece um, and everybody will be able to get your point of view in that. So I don't want that to overshadow this interview. I would rather want to focus on your legacy and, and you know, things that people won't be able to ask, if that is all right with you. Well, you ask whatever you like, Ronaldo. I'm, I'm used to having interviews, tough and not so tough, and I'm quite happy to answer any questions you ask. Well, hopefully this one won't be tough, but more enjoyable. So, you know, um, the, the first question I have, and I've actually written it down because I wanted to make it, uh, you know, it's an important question. It says, you are constantly attacked for your outspoken views. Why do you think people assume this is something new? Because you were vocal during the apartheid years and you are vocal now. And for some reason, now it seems to be a problem. Well, it was always a problem. I mean, the apartheid government didn't like me one single bit. And uh, I was always being attacked for my views very strongly. Interestingly enough, it was easy, easier to stand up for the truth then in many ways than it is now. Even though today we have a constitution, even though today we live in a nominally free society, back then, when you opposed identity politics, you were on the moral high ground. It was progressive to oppose identity politics because, of course, we know that apartheid was based on the philosophy of identity politics. And so when you opposed it very vocally then, yes, you got a lot of flack. Yes, you got a lot of interest from the state in a very negative way. But the people who you respected were really committed to the progressive notion of non-racialism and inclusion. Today, for some extraordinary reason, identity politics, the exact philosophy that apartheid was based on, 
has suddenly turned out to be quote unquote progressive because it's in the favor of a certain group that can use it in their interests exactly as the national party government could use it in their interests. And it shouldn't be a surprise. I mean, this African National Congress and then the National Party, they've got a hell of a lot in common. And if you stand up against a nationalist party of any sort, and of course, the EFF is an extreme form of national socialism, well, then you're going to get flack. Um, it used to be progressive to oppose it then. It seemed to be retrogressive to oppose it now. But looking back in history, it will be seen to be just as necessary now and just as progressive now as it was back then. Mm. And you were, you, were, you were also arrested uh, during that period. And I can't... I'd, I don't see in the in in you know the Wikipedia's and that if you actually have a criminal record or if it's something that was that was removed uh, because I I do know that you were in a in breach of uh, you know being in a in a I think it was a township after hours I don't know if you actually received the criminal record for that yes I did get a criminal record at the time um, I was charged in court and found guilty and. Of course, you know, I wasn't interested in, in remaining within the apartheid laws at all. And so my husband didn't want me to keep on breaking them. But I said to him, look, I've got to live my life. I've got to organize. I was working for the Black Sash at the time, not for any remuneration, entirely voluntarily. And I kept on going to, to sites of forced removals and opposing them and supporting people whose houses were being broken down all the time. And doing things like that and that that's when i was arrested and put in the back of uh paddy wagons and taken off so it seems that they let any riffraff become premiers these days even if you've got a criminal record i tell you <clears throat> so really? the next question i have is that you are constantly try or people are constantly trying to discredit you um whether it's the former public protector whether it's now the the current public protector um, and even mainstream media with, with the hit pieces that, that they try and write uh, on you as well, as well as woke people on Twitter. Why do you think they are so hell-bent on trying to destroy who and what you are as well as your legacy? Well, I think that they find me threatening. I speak my mind and I do believe that I speak the truth, although I am open to other people convincing me that they have a better argument on rational grounds, not on irrational grounds but on rational grounds. And because I really channel, challenge racial nationalism and the very philosophy that underpins it and is creeping like a cancer through the society, a lot of people with a lot of vested interests don't like me doing it and fight back. But I don't mind if they fight me because I'm at my best under pressure. And I'm at my best with my sleeves rolled up and I'm very used to it. So there's nothing new under the sun for me and yeah it's 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 interesting because people are claiming now that you know helen zilla's twitter account has got hacked <laughs> and i mean it, it just shows that it's people that don't actually know helen zilla because like i said as my in my very first question this this is who you are you've always rocked the boat and history has vindicated you um you know if if you look at what and where we are currently and what your stance was and I have no doubt that history in, in 20 or 30 years will vindicate you once again with this, with you know your point of view at the moment and fighting the fight that you are. Great. I don't know what's coming through on my phone. I don't know if you can hear it. Let me let me close my um let me just close this quickly. I hope I'm not uh, let me just close that and then that should all close and, and close very are you there still? I'm here. Okay, I just want to make sure that uh, can you see me? I can see you, yes. Okay, good. I was just closing things that keep on coming through on my screen. No, um, fine. Look, I really try to get to the truth. Now, the truth is a very hard thing to get to. And you have to really work hard to get to the reality. But when I believe that I'm close to the truth, I defend it with everything I have. And I promote it with everything I have. And I'm quite prepared to keep doing that. I'm not scared. Mm. And the, the one interesting thing that I saw now that, that's currently in the news is the public protector once again getting something wrong. And this is the same public protector that found against you. Um, and you surely you must feel a little bit vindicated. Um, and, you know, she's just constantly getting it wrong. And there's a clear indication that 
there's a secret force that she's working for. So obviously now nobody that condemned you and, and said you were guilty would come in your defense and say, hey, well, maybe uh, Helen's son and the, that whole saga didn't actually play out the way that the public protector is portraying it to play out. Well, everybody knows what the facts are. My son was a mathematics teacher in Kailicha who borrowed from his employer some tablets to give extra lessons in the holidays to prepare kids for their matric exams for free. He didn't make a single cent out of anything. The kids benefited hugely, as many people can attest. He gave the tablets back in mint condition, and they were being procured for another purpose entirely. They have been used for that purpose, which is a similar purpose by different people. He was certainly not the only one who borrowed them at all. And there's really no basis to this. It is just a complete bit of manufactured, ANC-driven nonsense. And, and when, that's how it sorry. continues. Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you. No, it's fine. When, uh, is, I mean, because you've taken this on review, is, is there any time now where this is actually going to come, you know? Well, in the first review case I've got against the public protector is in September. And then I don't know when the next one is. But there's a number of review cases. Look, I've got a lot of time for the for the previous public protector. I don't agree with her, her views on identity politics. Mm. And I really don't agree with scapegoating whites and whiteness. And I really don't agree with the un, uh, identity politics that underlies that. Starting to scapegoat minorities in a complex society when a majority has a vested interest in not facing the real obstacles to development, but blaming minorities and scapegoating minorities is a very dangerous thing. And even if you do it under the veneer of some kind of highfalutin identity ideology imported from the United States, it is very dangerous. And I will continue to point that out. And even if it's under the veneer of these whinge poets, I don't know what they call them in the United States, where everybody's still blaming history for their failure to make progress. And there may well be some validity to it, but can we look at the other aspects as well and the other real blockages to progress? And then seizing upon the ideology of grievance and victimhood dressed up in all kinds of academic jargon is something I don't go for. Exactly. And that is one thing that was quite important is, and without really getting into the details, because it's there for everybody to see, the tweet that you put out was in response to those poets that were grossly stereotyping people. And we've all seen what happens when people are stereotyped, that that was one of the foundations of apartheid. Well, absolutely. Look, you know, I hadn't, this was some kind of poem about how dreadful whiteness is and whites and why whites are so awful. And it was basically a poem done in America. And all the ironies were just locked even in the first four sentences. I mean, I don't even want to go into them now, but it was all the ironies and hypocrisy that no one sees through because you dare not call it out because you might give somebody offense. So I answered with one obvious little sentence. I said, well, why are you talking English? Oh, my goodness. You would have thought that I had abused a baby in public, you know. Mm. That's all I asked. And I got a whole lot of white privilege tweets and this white privilege and that white privilege. And you don't even know what white privilege is. And you don't even. No one knows my background who's saying this. No one knows where my parents came from. Well, many do. But I mean, no one knows about my background of so-called privilege. And they all have no hesitation in making the most outrageous stereotypical generalizations of all whites and then putting a collective guilt on all whites as a deflection from what the real obstacles to progress are in the society. Now, that is so dangerous. It leads to a Rwanda. It leads to a Venezuela. It leads to, in the last resort, the pogroms that we've seen against minorities. And I am going to call it out when I see it and when it starts. So I replied to a tweet which I found highly offensive, but I don't sit in the corner and cry and manufacture outrage. I fight back. Mm. 
<laughs> by a very privileged young man who has not had an underprivileged background, who's benefited from the best education and ironically, all the legacy of the church and various other things. And he asked me if I understood white privilege and went through a whole lot of things. So I said, do you understand black privilege? It is, for example, being able to loot a country and get reelected. And of course, that was what caused the outrage, not in a proper conversation as you have on Twitter, mm. but this is another part of the hypocrisy and double standards. You can be as rude as you like to a minority. You can generalize and stereotype and marginalize and insult, and that's fine. But God help it that a member of that marginalized and stereotyped group who steps up and says, this is a bridge too far and fights back. God help it that you do that. And, and here's the thing that, that I actually want to build up on is that you have been quite vocal with regards to the legacy of apartheid and and the, the absolute destruction that it caused. And if any if any person had to approach you and say, Helen, you understand the notion of white privilege, and it's not used as a weapon, but rather as a, a departure point to have a conversation. I've you've said this before, you've mentioned it before, that you understand that you know there is the concept of white privilege and there's a beneficial legacy uh, to apartheid for, for white people in this country. But when it's used as a weapon to insult and belittle and, and take away from the argument, then it becomes a problem. And uh, I'm sure that you, you can attest to this and you agree with that statement. Yes, I absolutely do. I mean, it's always used to deflect from an argument. If you're having a discussion on X, all you have to say is, well, you're a racist or you have white privilege and the, argue, the debate closes down because mm. you aren't discussing the merits of question A or B. It all becomes, well, this is about how much melanin you've got in your skin. Now, there is absolutely no doubt that under apartheid, whites did have many privileges that black South Africans did not. But many of them started having had any advantage they may ever have had in life wiped out. I mean, my parents came to South Africa as incredibly impoverished refugees. Didn't, well, hard, my mother spoke a bit more English because she'd been in, in, in London as a midwife for a time. But no education, hardly speaking any English, absolutely no money at all. We lived in a, a house that was mostly corrugated iron, iron when we started out. Now, obviously, it was a time of apartheid, but my father didn't get good jobs in the state or well, he started his business from absolute scratch and built it up. So there was no favors, no handouts, absolutely nothing. And the rest of our story is not one that I would tell publicly, but I've been very open about it in my autobiography. The point is, yes, we did have privileges under apartheid, but my parents both fought apartheid with everything that they had because they'd been subject to such discrimination in their lives. And I've done that too my whole life. But I don't want to see the wheel turn and the pendulum swing so that we just recreate another set of racial nationalisms to perpetuate this racial stereotyping, this deflection from the truth, and this mobilization on the lowest common denominator of ethnic solidarity. And to build on that, um, like I've said, you, you've got 67,000 tweets on Twitter, and majority of them are ones in which you talk about the problems of South Africa, past, present, and possibly future. And yet there are four tweets from, from, from what I can recall that has shaken the ground in South Africa with every single media house reporting on it. Now, we all know what those four were and, and what they are. Why do you think that so much emphasis is placed on those tweets, but not on your collective work? Well, I think those tweets say what everybody knows is true and what in the future they will know to be true, but at the moment are very difficult to face because they cut across a narrative that is in the advantage of people who have a vested interest in promoting a particular narrative that is very inconvenienced by the facts. Mm. And just uh, uh, people are asking in the comment section, so I will just mention it. Uh, Helen Ziller's book is called Not Without a Fight. Um, I'm correct, right, Helen? Yes, absolutely. And it was actually because I haven't read a book for about seven years before I actually picked up that book. So I'm still going to bring it to you. You need to sign it for me. Um, Good. 
So yeah, and it was absolutely riveting reading, and it, it's quite scary. And everybody that that might be watching this, that that think that Helen is just the person that was a, a media, uh, you know, a reporter that reported on on one specific, uh, you know, person, it goes so much deeper than that. And uh, that book is definitely a good read. And I mean, if if you see Helen as the enemy, then it's always good to read the the your, you know your enemy's books because then you can understand them better. So um, on that though, Helen, is there going to be a follow up book? I know that it was an autobiography, but surely um, there's a lot that you can still write about. You know, I've got so many books in me. I've got a book on governance: how to turn a vision into action that produces results. It's not easy to do that. And as the history of government in South Africa shows, it's very, very difficult. So that's number one. But that's going to be a boring book. I want to write a few more combative books. You know, I've been going through my cuttings, Ronaldo, and I've got boxes and boxes and boxes of cuttings. And they date back well before you can search on the internet and stuff like that. <coughs> Excuse me. And I'm fascinated to read my analysis at the time versus the political commentators. As I tweeted this morning, I read an analysis of Corinne Duplessis in 2014 when I was packing up this morning. I get up very early to do this packing. And she was saying I was being alarmist and fear-mongering about Jacob Zuma and this and that and the ANC. And I just read it all through and I thought, man, Far from being alarmist, my, my predictions were an understatement as to what actually happened. Uh, there's a great book in looking at all the fights I've had with journalists over the years, and they have been many. And I'm not the kind of person who's scared of fighting with journalists. People say you must never fight with people who buy ink by the barrel. The good thing now about <laughs> media and other things is that you've got your own platform, and it doesn't matter if you fight with them, because they're just as fallible as the rest of human beings, you see. So, um, you know, I'd love to write a book on all these big debates and look back on history and look at whether Cader deployment, look at what happened to legitimized corruption that was dressed up as BBBEE, look at what happened to state capture, which I was talking about years before the other journalists, look what happened with media capture. And it's quite an extraordinary thing what happened with media capture and uh, that those journalists are often still writing and exposing and having platforms, and there's no accountability there either, believe me. And uh, yeah, a lot of people are asking in the comments for you if you would, wouldn't mind tweeting that one specific one out. I might, you might want to keep it for the book, but maybe you can just share it. Uh, people are very interested to read uh, that that specific snippet uh, snip that you got there. So maybe, maybe if you would like to do that. Well, I've I tweeted it earlier today, so they can Did go and look. Oh, okay. So you actually yeah, posted the image. The analysis from 2014. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I've tweeted it. Okay. Well, guys, go and check out uh, Helen's Twitter feed and you'll find it there. Um, okay. So just to get back uh, to you being the premier and also the mayor of Cape Town, um, I actually want to just ask you some questions with regards to that. And the first one is what did you find the most rewarding uh, being the mayor of Cape Town or being the, or or being the premier of the Western Cape? Well, they were both rewarding in different ways. Being the mayor was more complex from a, gov from a political point of view. We had a very divided party, still between the DP and the NNP. So that was really very challenging and very difficult. And then we had uh, a coalition. I had a seven-party coalition to manage, which was unspeakably difficult to do. Mm. And... Just taking over a government that had been so badly shattered and trying to fix it was a big challenge, and I only had just under two, just under three years to do it. So that was a huge challenge, but I enjoyed it. I had a wonderful team, and when you start succeeding, then it really feels good. So I left quite a good administration um, for my successor, Dan Plato. And then, of course, we got an overall majority in the Western Cape, which was really fantastic. And then I could start focusing on stabilizing the ship and learning the lessons of delivery. And that was really amazing. Mm. And then obviously you also, you got the award as the best mayor or it was mayor of the world or what was the title? World mayor was called. Just, just another title to add, right? Nothing serious there. 
um, what was the most rewarding out of your your being the premier of the Western Cape? If you look back now, what was the most rewarding? I know that please don't give it a political answer. Tell me there were many. Tell me the one that stands out above all else for you. I wish I could find the one that stands up. I think, you know, the truth is there's nothing that you can claim single-handedly because there's nothing that you can do single-handedly. But to see that despite the incredible demographic shift to the Western Cape, our unemployment is now 14 percentage points lower than South Africa's is something that gives me a real high because it means that the work we've done has enabled a lot of people to be employed who otherwise wouldn't be employed. Of course, the more people see they have a chance of getting a job here, the more people come and then obviously we battle like hell to keep the ship steady. My biggest failure is failing to get the fiscal and finance formula changed so that money actually follows the people because currently money goes to the province where they were last counted, not to the province where they actually are. And that's why we end up with 55 kids in a classroom Whereas some very good schools in the Eastern Cape, for example, are almost empty because they haven't got any pupils to teach anymore. Oh, definitely. Um, I, for instance, I know in currently in Nelson Mandela Bay, they've only spent 41% of their budget and the budget ends at the end of this month. So just from that point of view, it, it's quite scary that you talk about the Eastern Cape schools and also, like for instance, you know, the service delivery in Nelson Mandela Bay. And uh, we're currently sitting with, I think, a three-party three coalition. So I can only imagine how it was to have a seven-party coalition in order to run the city of Cape Town. Um, I just, I also wanted to ask uh, just what uh, will you miss most out of being uh, the Premier? You know, I will miss the friendships. My office has been absolutely brilliant and they have been so loyal to me. I can't tell you through all the ups and downs what that loyalty means. I can't begin to tell you. When all the knives are out for you, and they often are, to have a team that really has your back is absolutely fantastic. That's number one. Number two, I'll miss being driven around. You know how fantastic it is to be driven around because I can work in the back of a car. I wrote my book in the back of a car. <laughs> I learned my closet in the back of a car. I do huge amounts of stuff in the back of a car. And I never have to parallel park. I never have to know where I'm going. <laughs> I just have to get in the car when they tell me to be there. And I get to where I'm going. And I don't even look at, look up to see how we're getting there. Hopefully so it wasn't that, with the Blue Light Brigade, though, Helen. No, definitely not. Well, oh, that's good. Not. I've got a combi. A combi is the car I like because then I can take a lot of people with me if there's a number of people going. We don't have to put two cars on the road and stuff like that. <laughs> and then another thing I'm going to miss very, very much is the household staff at Leavenhall. You don't know what it is like never to have to worry when you were formally entertaining about even drawing up a shopping list. Everything's going to be planned. Everything's going to be done. Everything's going to be delivered. Everything's going to be perfect. You rock up, you literally change your clothes and brush your hair, and it just works like clockwork. And that is what I'm going to miss. Okay. Well, that's yeah. It, it's quite interesting because I suppose that so much take so many things take up your time as a premier that you actually you still have to entertain, but uh, you know it makes sense then for people to obviously assist you with that. Yeah. Um, let me ask you what. So this is a little bit of a shift again, but it's just what is currently disappointing you the most in our political climate? So not necessarily what is happen happening on social media, because we've actually seen the power of social media or rather the lack of power of social media when it comes to the ballot box, because the BLF that was making a lot of noise and to an extent the EFF making a lot of noise still got almost no no real tangible vote, if I can put it that way, with all due respect to 10%. But what is what in, what in your opinion is it disappoints you the most in our political climate currently? Well, as I say, the incredible power of racial nationalism and the incredible power of the pull of ethnic identity and the vested self-interest in it. And the extent to which people who opposed apartheid with everything they had seem only to have done it because they were on the receiving end. 
now that they can dish out identity politics, it's somehow progressive suddenly to do it. And it is so pervasive. And what disappoints me the most is the extent to which it's pervading the DA. And to, to ask on to, to ask on that point, when do you think this started? Okay, can you put your finger on, on a time, and this is a question that, that Conscious Caracol, which is another brilliant mind and a brilliant YouTuber, that, that asked. He asked it a little bit differently, but I would like to know, can you point at a time when, when this started happening, where you could see that shift um, taking place? Well, I'm afraid I'm going to have to bear quite a lot of responsibility for it. Because I think I didn't take enough of a stand against it when I was the leader. I didn't see the incredible risks as clearly as I do now. And I might have done some things fundamentally differently. But the pull of ethnic and racial nationalism is a very worrying feature and it will destroy South Africa unless we can challenge it. I strongly. agree. And with regards to mainstream media starting to picking up on it and also just in the South African context, because the African National Congress has always had that narrative that they sort of pushed on the sidelines. Because at first it was, it's the legacy of apartheid and and at first it was it's apartheid's fault and then it started shifting to you know it it is uh, white people's fault so it went from from people that directly had an effect during apartheid and and caused you know the the rules and regulations and the policies and then it started shifting do you think this is something that that was caused by politics overseas and then we adopted that that sort of approach or when can you place your finger on that well i place my finger on a transition that's been going on for longer than i ex than i really expected and that i don't think i recognized early enough it's been called in the literature by uh, campbell and manning as a great shift of moral cultures from a dignity culture to a victimhood culture, which has been taking place in America and which has now spread through the English speaking world and pervaded it and particularly radiating out from humanities faculties at universities. And it paints, it's, a, it's an offshoot of Marxism ironically because it paints the entire world in terms of oppressors and oppressed, whether it's in class terms, race terms, gender terms, and they're always the evil and the good guys. And the evil are always to blame for everything and the good guys are the helpless victims of everything. And that new articulation of Marxist politics, which can still somehow be justified in America where black people are in a minority is very, very dangerous in a country where you have really small minorities that are being scapegoated and stereotyped. When I think well over 90% want to contribute, want to build a South Africa for all and want to be recognized on their merits and not on the color of their skin. It used to be very progressive, Martin Luther King's great words. I just want a country in which my children can be judged on the content of their character, not the color of their skin. Today, no one's interested in the content of your character, the way they just look at the color of your skin and decide whether you're good or bad. And it's exactly the thing we've been supposed to have been fighting all these years. Mm. Uh, only a good white, by the way, if you agree with all of that analysis. Then you qualify as a good white. Yeah, that's also true. Do you, do you think though that it, it's also the the public at large that hasn't held or does, hasn't held the ANC responsible for their failures over the last twenty five years? Because they like, and I've I've explained this before, where there's there's a you need to look at it from a perspective of the the legacy of apartheid and the effect that it has on the populace today. 
but it doesn't seem to translate into people holding the ANC responsible for their failures over the last 25 years as the government. Look, accountability is a very complex thing, but it's absolutely essential for a country to succeed. You know that I'm a great Fukuyama fan, and he said there are three basic things that are essential, non-negotiable for a country to succeed. One is the rule of law. I call it constitutionalism. The second is a capable state, a capable state independent of the political party. And the third is a culture of accountability. And we've got very little culture of accountability in South Africa. We, we, we do really badly on all three. And I've tried my very best to do well on all three in the government of the Western Cape. But I think we do appallingly in accountability. And at every level, I mean, people have babies and walk away from them. They don't support them. They don't think it's their responsibility. People have unprotected sex and then the government must step in and fix things. People drink when they're pregnant. People drink and get into motor cars. Now, the level of accountability in South Africa at a general level is just shocking. And it translates into voting. Why hold your government accountable for all the looting that's been done? Because they can mobilize you on the basis of race and say, be very scared of whites. They're very frightening. They will bring back apartheid, which is the biggest lot of nonsense you've ever heard in your life. And then avoid accountability. That's what I talk about, deflecting the argument from where it should be by mobilizing on race and identity politics. So how, how do we stop this identity politics narrative? How, how I mean, I know that... We have Sorry. to fight it, and we have to fight it on the platforms where it is the strongest. I mean, people, it's, it's the strongest on Twitter. There's no question about that. It's the strongest on Twitter. Facebook, it's much better, actually. But Twitter is a venal, vicious space. And people say to me, well, why don't you get off it? And I say, no, I'm not going to leave a platform to the most racist and the most intolerant members of society I'm going to build a liberal ecosystem on Twitter to fight back. And if you've looked at the con this particular controversy, Ronaldo, you will see that there is a big liberal ecosystem growing on Twitter. And a lot of people who are fighting back against this nonsense, Conscious Caracol, whoever he or she is, is one of them. Yeah, it, it definitely is. And I mean, I, I've seen, because I mean, I've also been giving my two cents on it and obviously retweeting what you've said. And I mean, the amount of support, I mean, I've got, uh, what, uh, 12,000 people on, on Twitter and I had a, the, the thing that I spoke uh, on you about had 1,200 retweets, uh, 1,200 uh, likes, which is substantial because it, it, and the support that you've also been receiving, um, it, it it's actually, it, it's quite refreshing. And as much as Twitter is still a very, very toxic place and uh, it's people living in the echo chambers, I have to say that it has improved. It has improved from where it was two years ago. It's improved massively. It's first improved because Twitter is taking the bots and the sock puppets much more seriously than it used to. And it's cleansing the space of a lot of them. So people, most people that are there, you know, are genuine people, even if they've got pseudonyms. But before, they were just tweets generated by absolute hateful algorithms on computers and what was known as troll farms. So it was good that Twitter was forced to take that seriously and start acting against these fake people who had just Twitter accounts uh, backed by algorithms and computers. But the other thing is that we have consciously built a liberal ecosystem, ecosystem there that fights back. Now, ecosystem is a nice word because it's an echo chamber, E-C-H-O, it's an ecosystem, ECO. Yeah, and ecosystem. Liberals, liberals like you and me don't go and sit down and die. We stand up and fight back for the space. And Sichli and Gobesi, Big Daddy Liberty, is one of them. And a range of people uh, are, are, are there doing that as well. And it's just so wonderful to see that. You know, I mean, a lot of people are doing it. Yeah, and I mean, so we're, we're not as strong as the, as the ghastly racial nationalists. But we are getting there, and and that's the that's the value of fighting back. Yeah, it's it's quite ironic because it's called the intellectual dark web at the moment. So it, it is like considered still dark at the moment, but hopefully we'll get to the point where. But the I, dark I, web is actually something else, and that's when all the illegal stuff happens. 
Yeah, no, but this is the intellectual dark web. So it, we're yeah. completely different class there. And it's also people that are considered to not be uh, mainstream media. So, I mean, for instance, my YouTube channel, uh, Renegade Report, Conscious Caracal, uh, people like that. And even your platform would be considered, you know, uh, the intellectual dark web of, of where, because it's not a, a, a mainstream media thing, which is it, it actually it bodes well to move into that point in saying that how much of the responsibility do you think lies with mainstream media in creating this identity politics that we currently face? Well, they are followers. They, they don't uh, intellectually lead. Now, I know that's also an unbelievable generalization, and you know how much I hate generalizations. Mm. There are some very good journalists. There are. There's no question about that. But I've come to the conclusion, especially reading this fascinating exercise of reading all these old pieces, journalists hunt in packs, they sing in the choir, they write for each other, not to serve a readership with writing that will stand the test of time. And also with uh, mainstream media being so competitive and it becoming basically, uh, you know, a, a advertising space to, to basically stay alive. Um, because internally, I know that there's some big companies that are retrenching like crazy at the moment. Um, I think that it's become sort of more about entertainment value for them than actual news because they know that they can sell the clicks if, uh, you know, the, the topic is controversial or outlandish. Or mention Zilla in the headline with some kind of <laughs> You should actually uh, trademark that. So whenever they use that name, you can get, get a couple of cents. I'm sure you'll, you'll do, you'll be all right. You'll be able to, you, you know, you, you won't need the salary of the premier anymore. So that'll be fine. Um, the thing is that, yeah, the, the funniest thing is that often their stories contradict themselves. I mean, there was a Sunday Times story recently about some alleged controversy about my former house, and they called it a Victorian villa. But they ran a picture of what was genu genuinely my house, and everyone mm -hmm. could see that it's complete garbage to call it a Victorian villa. But there's the actual picture of my house, and the description is a Victorian villa because they want to jazz it up and I, and I said how does this pass the sub-editors well I, I think it's like 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 I said I think it's just to sell the clicks because and and most of these are behind paywalls so you know the most of the articles that I had to read about you uh, was pretty much behind uh, one rand or three rand or you know a subscription monthly paywall which is exactly what they want because some people really despise you so much that they're willing to pay to read the article so i suppose that that is how they make their money too um and i mean yeah, not, not yeah not close despise, to you i don't despise many people i don't like hip hypocrites and i will go to war with hypocrites but uh, you know ironically many of the people who fight with me i don't think despise me at all but i might be wrong well, here's an example. I note that, for instance, with uh, Prof. Tuli Madoncella, you're going to actually have tea or coffee with her soon. Yeah. yeah. Now I've got a lot of time for Tuli. And uh, the same. Um, Sorry. Prof. Sorry. I think I'll be much more respectful than that with Prof. Madoncella. But I just don't like her embrace of identity politics. I really don't. I agree with you. Also, I'm, I'm disappointed, but I think maybe, and, and she's not here to defend herself, but I think that uh, it's her daughter's influence on her because her daughter is quite uh, active in EFF, the EFF, I mean, so maybe it's... Yeah, uh, Professor Marantella is a very strong person, so I don't think she'd be easily influenced, although I can't, you know, say that I'm, in my, my kids uh, take strong stands against me often. Mm, and for I'm sure. Told, I'm sure Professor Maroncella's kids also take strong stands against her. And, and I actually read something interesting. Well, it was a tweet that you put out in response to Tito Mboweni, um, in which uh, he asked you to please, Mama, stay off of Twitter today. And then um, you told the interesting story about him giving up your seat. How long ago was this? Was this when you still had, uh, uh, you know, your... 32 years ago. Okay. Years ago, probably longer, 33 years ago. Okay. And I mean, do you obviously have respect for him too. Yeah, I have a lot of respect for him. You know, I was on, on a flight with my little baby and he wasn't well and he was restless and crying and I was right, right, right in the back row in the back corner and had to keep on getting out to go to the bathroom and I had a million other things and he was crying. 
And Tito saw this from where he was sitting somewhere in the middle of the plane. And he got up and he said, I really need to help you. You've got to come and sit at the aisle over here. And he just saw it. I didn't know who I was. I knew who he was. It, it was at a, at, a, at a very interesting time. No, it was actually my second son, so it couldn't have been that long ago. It was then, it must have been about 28 years ago. It must have been about 28 years ago. Wow. Yeah. So, um, so and, and he was unbelievably polite and decent. Well, let me ask you this question then. What uh, current politician in the opposition benches do you respect the most? I, I respect Angie Mocheha hugely. She's got Can the I... courage of mine. I respect people with courage. Hmm. I respect people with courage and integrity. Those are the two yardsticks. You know, Winston Churchill said, of all the political virtues, courage is the most important because it underlies every other. And he was completely right. So I, I've got a high regard for Angie Mocheha. I've got a very high regard for Pravin Gordon. I've got a high regard for, let me think hard, Tito, obviously. Um, a lot of people can be very expedient, although I know they're nice people. Mm. Well, I mean, I've, I've got a bunch of people locally that they, you know, it's so, it's a weird experience from, for me as, as a very new politician that in council meetings you've got people that that are vehemently saying terrible things and then as soon as the cameras switch off and you know you go for a coffee break then it, it's as if they've been friends for with you for years and unfortunately i can't do that that switch off you know i can't switch off when somebody says something like the eff in the back saying something completely out of line and racist and then afterwards they want to shake your hand and say you know this or that i mean i'm sure that you've had that experience a lot also well i'm pretty used i'm pretty used to it and i'm you know uh, you, you have to get more used to it i mean in your first year it's a frightening experience but you know i think that i'm a compassionate person you'd obviously have to ask my family and the people that i work with whether i'm a compassionate person or not but i think i am but i've become also very thick-skinned to people I have no regard for. Yeah. They can say whatever they like about me, and it really is, in the saying of old Judge Erasmus, ducks water off my back. Yeah. And it's the same, yeah, I've also had to learn that with the YouTube channel and with people criticizing you all the time, that it's just, it, it's one of those things, you always get, if you have haters, it means you're doing something right. You should be worried if you don't have haters. Absolutely, I mean, you know, people who don't do anything and never get in the ring and, and fight for what they believe in, will be popular with everybody. So what? What are you achieving? Mm, for sure. But anyway, okay, that was that was all. Uh, I've got like three more questions because I don't want to keep it too long. I'll keep it in an hour. Um, I, there's an interesting question that was asked on Twitter. Um, and obviously, EWC is not legislation right now. But what current legislation would you scrap if you had complete power? So if you had the, the power to, to change or, or amend legislation, what would you do? Which one would you do? The first thing is that I would make it much, much easier to fire people. In all my time in government, we have managed to move one person out of a position for poor performance. And that took literally years to go through the process, literally years. And I would make it much easier to bring in brilliant people. Ironically, it is as hard to fire useless people as it is to bring in brilliant people. And I suppose that is because we're such a corrupt country that the minute you give more discretion to politicians like I would like, then they'll all be employing, you know, various um, people who can't do the job and sharing the money afterwards at the back, you know, or hiring a building from this one and that one. I mean, the corrupt schemes, you cannot believe. You cannot believe it. I mean, that people's minds can work that way is just beyond my comprehension. Even yesterday, I looked about what people do with the refuse bags that we that we uh, hand out so diligently, and yeah. and how they're used in corrupt schemes. Oh my goodness! I mean, the corrupt the level of corruption is unbelievable. But you have to have a way that if you get unqualified financial audits, you have much more discretion and autonomy. And if people are hopeless it should be much easier to 
thank them for their services and move on. Definitely. Um, I've, I've got to also, talking about corruption, um, <laughs> Jacob Zuma, um, I see that his defense currently is now talking about the spy tapes, uh, which you and the DA diligently fought for to, to be uh, you know brought up and, and to get access to that. Um, do you think that he will actually face those charges as, as well as with ace i know it's two completely different people but in my opinion it's two cor completely corrupt individuals do you think that that accountability will eventually come and and that they'll be held responsible you must remember that the charges against zuma are ones dating back to shabir sheikh that's in the early 90s i think the late 90s now those are the those are the nuts and bolts. Those are the nickel and dime corruption. The massive corruption happened after he became president in 2009. We are nowhere even near that. And if he's managed to postpone those charges for almost 15 years that we've seen, how are we going to get to the really big stuff? I think maybe what's happening to the mayor of Durban may be a very critical tip of the iceberg because I think probably the Durban treasury was a pot of gold for the inside Zuma clique and I think a lot may come out of that trial but you know it's like putting pulling your finger out of the dike and every hole bursting but just let's see what uh, Ms. Batoy does, our National Director of Public Prosecutions. Zuma has often said, if you put me in the dock, I'm telling everything that I know. Well, let's put him and in the dock. And that, well, we want to, but a lot of people in the ANC don't. Mm. You do not know how endemic corruption is there. Right. Uh, another interesting question that was asked, um, and it's something that I've also been asked a couple of times, is and I know that you're a very optimistic individual, but would you recommend a young South African to remain in South Africa or a family that, that has young kids in the current climate? Well, I've got, you know, two children in that position and grandchildren. And I'd love them to stay in South Africa because the world, Ronaldo, has to work out how to live in plural societies peacefully has to work out how to judge people by the content of their character and not the color of their skin or their religion or anything else. Has to learn to, to live in accountable systems that function under the rule of law and due process, that enable people and it require people to be personally accountable and responsible. That's the challenge for the whole world. And nowhere does that challenge come together as crisply and clearly as it does in South Africa. So literally without putting ourselves on a pedestal or claiming special cases for South Africa, we have to do a pioneering job for the world. And if you want to have your life to have meaning and purpose, you'll stay in South Africa and do something about it and not whinge and whine. And if people are going to attack you for it, you've got to have strong enough spine to deal with it. Really good answer. All right, the second last question, and I think this is probably the most important question of the evening, is do you watch Game of Thrones? No. And, uh, okay, I well, I read, okay. I read about it on Twitter, and I see a few memes about it, but I've never watched it once. It's completely unacceptable. It. This, this interview is ending right now. I'm sorry, <laughs> I, I can't. Please, please make a commitment to, to us here, the 650 people watching, that you will please, when you get now a little bit of time off, that you'll watch Game of Thrones. I want to watch a documentary I've heard on Rachel Dolezal in America because she's the lady who decided she was black. And everybody got very upset with her because they said, you're obviously not black, you're white and you're masquerading as black. And I uh, wonder why, why people say you can choose your gender, but you can't choose your race. So all it of was puzzle me so i want to find out a bit about that yeah that was a netflix documentary it was really really good um, I want to see, see my, you know I, I don't like fiction i want to see real dilemmas in real life if i have to sit through a, an episode of game of thrones i think i'll 
Well, Game of Thrones, I can I can tell you, it's pretty much like South African politics. So I would con I would consider it more like a, a documentary on South African politics than anything okay. else. If it's that, then I will look at it. I promise okay. the six hundred five fifty people watching, and I will look at it. Perfect. So I I have to say though that uh, you know I wanted to ask you which character you would be um, according to you, but I can tell you that when you eventually watch it, uh, I consider you Dragon, which is the dragon. Um, and you'll understand it when you when you see what I'm what I what I'm talking about. Okay, let's let, let me go and watch Drogon. Perfect. But anyway. All right. So the last question is, what does the future hold now? I mean, I mean this, and I also don't want this to sound like you know Helen Ziller is now going to walk into the sunset and that's the end because I know, and I think every South African knows that this is not the end. This is merely the beginning. But what does the future hold for you? And and you know, if you know what you are planning, you can always share it here or you can make it a surprise for us in the future. The truth is, I really don't know. I want to be free to speak my mind. But that is a constitutional right in South Africa, so it shouldn't be something that I have to choose a job in order to be. And I want to tackle the issues that I think are absolutely make or break for South Africa. Because the entire purpose of my life is to ensure that South Africa works for everybody. And I still feel that I've got 20 years in me. I feel as young as I did when I was 25. At least, at least, Helen. <laughs> I've got a bit of wisdom on my shoulders now. <laughs> and I'm tougher than I was then. Yeah. The one thing, sorry, and I mean, this is something I wanted to ask earlier, but you you were kind of a SJW back in the day. Um, and and what changed that, if, if I may ask? I know that I... I'm exactly that. I'm exactly what I always was. I was an SJW against racism and racial nationalism. And I'm still an SJW against racism and racial nationalism. With all the baggage, without all the baggage, rather, because SJWs currently has got a lot of baggage on their shoulders. That connotations. Well, you know what? What I see it. I mean, look. You know, the term is 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 one for identity politics. Now, I don't think that everybody we should allow people to appropriate the the terms. I have always fought for people to be judged as individuals, and for equality of opportunity, and for spreading privilege, not scapegoating individuals. I've always been raised to understand that life is unfair. And later on, when my father's business started to succeed, I went to a school where our family was amongst the very poorest of all of them. And there was no time for whinging and whining and wada wada. You got on with it. And if there was a problem, you worked harder to solve it. Now, that's the culture I grew up with. And I am now very grateful that I did because I applied myself as I had been taught to do. But I am still fighting racism and I'm still fighting for the freedoms, especially freedom of speech. It's not just another freedom. It's an absolutely foundational freedom because all of the progress that has been made in the world has happened because some people or some person at a time and place, stood up to the establishment and said things that were wholly unacceptable at the time, but turned out to be true. And so I will continue fighting for those things. Well, I think that's a perfect place to end it. Um, Helen, I, I know that you, you've pretty much summed it up, but if there's anything that you would like to say in closing, perhaps to the people watching, um, and then I will end it after that. Well, Ronaldo, it's been great knowing you. It's been great chatting to you. And I just hope you don't lose your job because of me. <laughs> no, you see, I believe that uh, as a liberal organization, I think that these uh, rights are given to us to speak freely and to be honest about it. So, um, no, but I I'm sure that maybe you can have a job for me, if anything else. <laughs> well, I'll certainly try and find one. <laughs> but, Helen. And your color. <laughs> Listen, it has been an absolute Pleasure, Helen. And uh, the reason, I mean, it was always a tongue-in-cheek uh, joke to be the last person to interview you as the Premier of the Western Cape. But I have to say that it, it's been a pleasure watching you. Uh, and it's so weird for me to call you Helen because as an Afrikaans person, it's a respect thing. So I have to say Tani Helen um, for, 
Ik met my tannie nie. Ach, jou bliksem. But I think, I think uh, I speak on behalf of everybody that's watching here and, and just saying a collective thank you for being who you are. Thank you for, for what you stand up for and, and, and not keeping quiet and, and saying things exactly how it is and, and being a representative for people that are willing to be free thinkers. And the fact that being a, a free thinker is considered so outlandish currently is scary. So more, more now than ever, we need to, to you to continue with the voice because you have a platform and you have a following and it's obviously I'm, I'm preaching to the converted here but i just want to say thank you for what you do and please never ever stop until your last breath thank you very much ronaldo and the same to you i love seeing young people with guts with courage stay in south africa and do their bit where they are with what they have thank you Perfect. And I think that's a perfect place to end it. Everybody that's watching, thank you so much for tuning in. Be sure to go and follow uh, Helen Zilla on Twitter, at Helen Zilla. Um, I'm sure everybody here follows you already. And uh, yeah, please continue to keep up with the fire. Um, and also to everybody that's watching, don't forget to subscribe. Uh, hit that like button below if you enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, hit... Well, yeah, you can also hit the like button, Helen. Uh, but thank you so much. And uh, to everybody that watched, uh, I'll be uh, back on Sunday with the Sunday debate. I don't know who the host is yet, but uh, somebody will be up there. So thank you, Helen. Uh, I really appreciate you giving an hour of your time for us tonight. Um, and to everybody else out there, cheers and peace out. Thanks, Ed. Thanks, dude. And that's a wrap for this week's show. Keep updated to this podcast by hitting the follow button. And if you've enjoyed this dose of common sense, then be sure to like, post, and share with everyone you know. Till later, cheers and peace out.